welcome. This is the second in the series on anatomy and art. We've had a little bit of a hiatus. Um, the first section, if you want to refer back to it, being opening bodies. And this second section is entitled Picturing Bodies, the Artistry of Anatomy and the Anatomization of Art. Start with a quote that comes from uh, Jose Van Dyck's uh, her book, The Transparent Body, a Cultural Analysis of Medical Imaging. It's difficult to properly evaluate contemporary anatomical art without the perspective of art history. And I think that's a great quote, the separation, which is somewhat artificial, particularly in recent years, but also historically, I think, between art and anatomy. <clears throat> Although it would seem intuitive that dissection of the human cadaver should have been illustrated, this approach was largely a Renaissance invention. Those anatomists working before Vesalius had certainly used pictures in their descriptions and anatomy books, but not in such a concerted and systematic fashion. And in this respect, Vesalius represented a watershed for anatomy, the history of the discipline as much the history of its illustration as of its individual discoveries. The Vesalian technique of dissection, the idea that one should dissect the cadaver for oneself, reasserted the power and the importance of empirical observation even when the anatomy of an area had been already well established. The method became so influential that all anatomists were effectively designated as pre- or post-Vesalians in a manner that any temporal association with Galen could never achieve in the eyes of historians. But within this tradition of anatomical illustration, there was an evolution of representation. Before Vesalius, if they were to present images of human internal anatomy at all, Medieval surgeons typically showed only the rough positions of particular organs and perhaps their astrological significance. Since there was no concept of cause and effect with human illness, all of which was believed to be providential, no great emphasis was ever placed upon the importance of a knowledge by physicians of the internal human anatomy. Indeed, the conceptual idea of a structured body in which there might be a functional interaction between the organs only emerged as science itself became a dominant explanator of nature. And despite this, dissection was well known in medieval times, but it still remains somewhat surprising that there wasn't much of a tradition for its anatomical illustration. In the 16th century, part of the profusion of illustrated anatomy texts came about as a direct result of the invention of the printing press. Uh, Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type printing probably around about 1440 or so. Before then, most of the books in European libraries, the Incunabula, were on theological subjects, often painstakingly produced in the monasteries by a select literate few who were trained in the art of illustration. The task for these illustrators to produce a realistic three-dimensional or dimensional conversion from a contoured 3D image 
or a dissection for that matter, onto a 2D canvas would have been daunting. After Constantinople was sacked by Christian forces in 1453 and when the vast caliphate library in Cordoba was destroyed, the compendium of Arabic books on medicine, which had been produced during its great era between the 8th and the 13th centuries, made its way to Europe for translation into Latin and the local vernacular. Vesalius, for example, incorporated Arabic and also ancient Hebrew into the main text of his Fabrica, but these great Islamic texts, which were now available for study, had been produced largely without any tradition of illustration. In Europe, meanwhile, when art was contemporaneously transforming into high art, anatomists who might have availed themselves of the opportunities to populate their dense texts with visually powerful images largely failed to do so. And it's worth considering that this failure to connect occurred when the Renaissance explosion of art was in many cases happening literally down the street from the jobbing anatomist. This was also a time when the commitment to Renaissance ideals in painting and architecture and sculpture meant a translation of ancient dogma into a modern setting. Anatomy maintained that commitment by adopting Galenic teachings into its modern curriculum, but it had never inveigled quality artists into that enterprise. Even as Renaissance artists were actively discovering the power and the beauty of the new perspective, and when Leonardo da Vinci was demonstrating new artistic techniques which encouraged a greater verisimilitude in portrayal of the human form, few anatomists found merit in any sort of artistic collaboration, and few books supplemented the close anatomy text with pictures. It remains really astounding that whilst the visual record of the parables was displayed for the illiterate masses on the walls and the ceilings of every church, that few had considered the possibility of pictorially conveying the known canon of anatomical knowledge to those who were far more educated. The earliest crude anatomical imagery found in the books of surgery seems comical today. The purpose of these schematic pictures was not so much, however, to teach the intricate details of anatomy, but rather to stand alone as emblematic reminders of the powerful impact peering into the interior of the human body imparted. Pictures weren't so much teaching aids, but rather templates of propaganda concerning themselves with the sublime recapitulation of Aristotelian and Galenic dogma. In the simpler sense, these most primitive anatomical images weren't always there for personal interpretation or study, nor were they designed to encourage those anatomists who are already actively engaged in dissection of the corpse to embark upon discoveries that in all likelihood might sit in discord with conventional thought. For this purpose, the text, rather than any pictures, would have seemed far more persuasive. One could say that the first known examples of anatomical illustration are the five-figure series, what are called the Fundbildesserie, a diverse collection of 12th and 13th century woodcuts found in the cloisters of Prüfening in 1154 and Cheyenne in 1250. These primordial images rather crudely show men and women frog-squatting, with in some cases the woman almost giving birth to their innards, their hands raised in benediction. 
And that's the first known set of anatomical pictures which separates the body into its systems of bones and nerves, arteries, veins and muscles. These initially appeared as part of Johannes de Ketham's Fasciculus Medicinae, a book first printed in Venice by the De Gregoris brothers in 1491. And these images clearly come from an earlier period with the medical historian Karl Sudoff who discovered them, suggesting that they might be of Persian, Tibetan or even Alexandrian origin. They're largely symbolic, the squatting frame with legs wide apart likely signifying the mythical earth mother Baobo, who according to legend made people laugh by exposing her pudenda. In the surgical texts of the Dark and the Middle Ages, anatomical illustrations were rare and they were typically schematised. A notable exception before the production of Mundinus's Anatomia was the Chirurgia Magna, a compendium of, ana of anatomy and surgery, combined with a list of poisons and antidotes, written in Montpellier sometime between 1306 and 1320 by the surgeon Henri de Montville. And de Montville's book shows crude expositions of skeletons and eviscerated cadavers, but without the requisite detail a surgeon might need. These images for their time are graphic and they relay shocking events. They're the result of the labours of a surgeon who was known to be adept at the dissection of apes and pigs, and who was one of the first teachers to have supported his anatomy lectures with giant drawing boards. Miniature copies of these pictures have found their way in, into libraries in Berlin, Paris, London and Erfurt. There are many other pre-Vesalian examples <coughs> where rudimentary portraits of the body have acted as a framework for surgical incisions, including works by one of the principal surgeons of the time of Bologna, Jacopo Berengario de Carpi, who described in pictorial detail the management of head wounds and skull fractures in his Tractatus Peritulus et Completus de Fractura Cranii. Relatively simple forms of this type of anatomical art that were exploited for their surgical approach towards disease became pretty popular, and they included the 1497 Chirurgia written by the military surgeon Hieronymus Brunschwig and produced by an unknown artist from the Upper Rhine. The pre-Vesalian period produced sporadic transitions in style from a medieval to a more modern idiom, with de Carpi heralding this shift in his much-admired 1521 Commentaria, ostensibly a summary of Mundinus's Anatomia that was peppered with a compilation of Berengario's own successful, no doubt, surgical cases. The book includes revolutionary artwork that has his cadavers lifting away their dissected flaps of skin to reveal the underlying disposition of their abdominal muscles. These vivacious corpses obligingly assist in their own dissections, and they're produced in a manner that would be emulated with far greater sophistication 200 years later by the artist Eduardo Fialetti, who drew the images of dissections performed by the Paduan Professor of Anatomy at the time, Giulio Casarius. In other prescient schematic pictures, de Carpi has the partially dissected corpse struck in a martyred crucifixion pose, a motif that was mimicked by the artist Jacques Gamelin nearly two centuries on for a book on osteology and myology. 
a complete skeleton appeared in 1493 in Nuremberg by Richard Hellin, who identified the individual bones on the image with scrolls and flag-waving banderoles. By 1510, the anatomist Johannes Peilig published the first anatomic encyclopedia as his Compendio Capitus Physici Declaratio, combined with woodcuts and copper engravings of schematic images of the entire body. At the University of Leipzig, Peilig was uh, ideally suited to the production of this early Citus work, where the relative positions of the organs are shown, since he was not only a prominent anatomist, but he was also the rector of the Faculty of Arts. The critical reference actually to Peilig's imagery was pretty mixed. The Austrian anatomist Joseph Hertel in the early 19th century called them grotesque, with the Strasbourg pathologist Friedrich Wieger writing that, quote, small boys with charcoal could do better on walls, unquote. By 1518, Laurentius Fierus had drawn the viscera with a far greater complexity in his Spiegel der Arzeni, the mirror of the doctors. The indication lines faithfully represented the manner in which the viscera of the abdomen and the thorax were restrained by their facial attachments. And it was really the first real visually representative evidence for how specific organs could be removed. In Bologna, a German colleague of Berengario, Johann Eichmann, who went by the name Driander, was amongst the first in his 1537 Anatomie to produce progressive images of a real human dissection. And in these, there was an emphasis on the skull and its symbolic meaning, with one such image reflecting the skin of the scalp to reveal the cranium. And that picture was the precursor of a very similar von Kalker etching made from Vesalius that would appear several years later, and which became the accepted method, really, as it is today, for exposing the human brain. Despite clear innovations, the images directed by Vesalius still borrowed heavily from his predecessors. Vesalian muscle men gambled across landscapes in a manner not too dissimilar from those of Berengario. And as the dissections proceeded, the Vesalian cadavers that at first confidently strode their backdrop soon stumbled and lost their balance, falling to their knees as their muscles stripped bare. And ultimately, deep in dissection and down to their bones, they were seriously in need of support. Only Delares, some 200 years later, could convey the three-dimensional relationship of the layering of the soft tissues by pinning one level atop the other and evoking the pictorial feel of a real dissection as it proceeds. Dissectors using Delares and Bidlou as their guide could literally marvel with anticipation of the next revealed layer. But before Vesalius had transformed anatomic art, there were the greatest of contemporary artists who became deeply engaged in dissecting cadavers for themselves.
Leonardo da Vinci, the primum inter pares of all of these men, had openly boasted his prowess in dissection, even after Pope Leo X had forbidden him to examine bodies in Rome. When Leonardo bragged of dissecting 30 bodies over the course of his lifetime, he did so to Antonio di Beatus, the secretary of the Archbishop Luigi of Aragon, when the clerical entourage visited the artist in Amboise, France in 1517. De Beatus writes of his astonishment at having seen Leonardo's anatomy folio, along with the paintings rarely seen but kept very close by Leonardo, the Mona Lisa and the St John the Baptist, as well as the Virgin and Child with St Anne. De Beatus wrote, this gentleman has written a great deal about anatomy. He wrote it in his travel journey, the Itinerario, and De Beatus immediately appreciated the unique nature of the folio images, writing also that his, quote, illustrations of parts of the body makes it possible to understand the bodies of both men and women in a way that's never been done before, unquote. So it was known about, but not spoken about very much. After this uh, period of initial dissection, when Leo had forbidden uh, uh, Leonardo to continue, uh, he returned to Milan and then ultimately was exiled to France under the aegis of King Francis I. He was still in that habit of showing his collection of anatomy drawings to travelling dignitaries. These folia were, however, largely unknown outside of these privileged circles, and Although Leonardo possessed anatomy books in his personal library, including De Ketham's Fasciculae Medicinae and Mendinus's Anatomia, there's no proof that those like Berengario or Vesalius ever borrowed from Leonardo's imagery. Although Leonardo's method of shadowing structures to create an impression of three-dimensionality wasn't unique, some of his techniques were true innovations, and they included rendering the more superficial parts of the body transparent in order to reveal deeper lying tissues, as well as reducing the substance of the muscles to simple cords so as to explain their biomechanics. And other techniques were the schematising of nerves to appear like roadmaps, the creation of exploded views of the bones to show their appearance from different angles, and a unique display of cross-sectional images, particularly of an opened human skull. Accurate or not, Leonardo had learned between his first and his second dissection periods. The early drawings are clearly simpler in construction, less intricate or studied, and far less annotated. But some of his later pictures shouldn't be taken too literally. In one depicting the skeleton of the back of the neck and produced at the end of his studies just before he died, he draws the cervical spinal column with four too many vertebral bodies. There's also a series of mechanical struts in that image which don't exist in real life, but which in the drawing act as a makeshift scaffold bracing the base of the skull to the shoulder blade. More than accuracy, I think Leonardo might have been indicating his own architectural notions here, even if somewhat heretically saying, in a sense, this is how I would have done it, a physical improvement in design of the human skeleton. Most of the other artists who dissected the human body did so to improve the anatomic realism of their art. Leonardo and possibly the Umbrian painter Vincenzo Dante 
born 1530 and died 1576, were the exceptions. Both of them were wholly engaged with the mechanics of the human interior. Giorgio Vasari, who in 1550 chronicled the panoply of painters and sculptors and architects in his great compendium, The Lives of the Most Eminent Painters, Sculptors and Architects, focused his attention on Leonardo and also on Michelangelo Buonarroti as the exemplars of those who could creatively read nature in such a way that their art might be seen by some to even surpass nature herself. But even if both men exploited dissection for the betterment of their art, they were fundamentally dissimilar, with the differences particularly reflected in their approach to the cadaver. Both artists shared patrons and they ran in similar circles, but they assiduously avoided one another, maintaining a contemptuous distance. Michelangelo dissected out of necessity. Leonardo did it out of passion. Leonardo's anatomies are artificially divided into his early Milanese and late Florentine and Roman periods, but it would be contrived to imagine that in the interim, anatomy was somehow not still one of his consuming preoccupations. Accounts of Michelangelo's dissections are more sporadic and anecdotal, and they don't amount to periods of concerted study as such. His anatomical interests never as methodical as Leonardo's and not imbued with the same sense of wonder about how and why the different parts of the body fitted together. Leonardo was a quiet, if not eccentric, contemplative polymath who wore fine clothes and composed music that he played for audiences on a handmade lyre. Michelangelo was unkempt. He'd often not change his dogskin breeches for months, and he was an irascible man, quickly provoked to ill temper, who argued with the Pope so brazenly that he was forced once to flee Florence and another time to go into hiding in one of the city's cellars. Both men were essentially uneducated, but Leonardo stimulated his agnostic inquisitiveness by devoting himself towards perpetual study. As a teenager, he was brought into the workshop of the great painter and sculptor Andrea del Verrocchio, and was apprenticed alongside Antonio Paolo Wolo, who had shocked his fellow artists with tales of dissecting limbs. Around 1485, Paolo Wolo had created a gilt bronze cast, The Battle of Naked Men, which served as the benchmark for the correct manner in which to draw the human form. There were animated stories of Paolo Wolo pulling the faces of his corpses into grimaces so that he could emulate the types of facial expressions one might see on a battlefield. And such stories would have certainly excited Leonardo and perhaps pushed him towards an artistic approach to human dissection. But not all devotees of the arts were impressed with Paolo Wolo's template for how to draw the naked body. Part of his battling men are just simply reversed recto images. The Victorian arts critic John Ruskin was particularly horrified by Paolo Wolo's hypermuscularity, as he was too with the dissection of corpses. What he said was a passionate excess, where the artists polluted their work with the science of the sepulchre and degraded it with presumptions and paltry technical skill. Ruskin also included amongst that lot of artists who he detested Andrea del Castagno, Andrea Mantegna, for goodness sake, and Michelangelo on his black list and as amongst the worst exponents of a type of art that he considered was polluted by anatomy. 
Even Leonardo didn't equate himself with what he called the pittori notomisti, the anatomical painters, believing that they overrepresented the musculature more as, as Leonardo wrote, sacks of walnuts than human bodies. Leonardo had, however, other influences amongst the artisanal titans who could have provoked his desire to dissect. He clearly had studied the works of both the architect Leon Battista Alberti and the goldsmith Lorenzo Ghiberti. Alberti had brought to Rome the ancient books of the architect Marcus Vitruvius Pollio and had had them translated into Latin even though his students had no knowledge of the language. Also publishing his own work, uh, uh, Alberti's The Della Pittura in 1435, he had extolled the virtues of drawing from nature and wrote of the need to obsessively represent the body in proportion. And these words had strongly influenced Leonardo, who spent long periods measuring the complete physical proportions of young men in his villa, the Corte Vecchia, in an effort to determine what he called l'universale misura dell'uomo, the universal measure of man. And by contrast, the advice Leonardo gleaned from Ghiberti came from Ghiberti's memoir, The Commentari, which was written by the goldsmith in vernacular Italian and prescriptively extolled the virtues for budding artisans of formal tuition in astronomy, arithmetic, geometry, and even grammar. In the book, Ghiberti strongly counsels students of the arts to avete veduto notomia, to have seen anatomies, and to be familiar with the points of origin and insertion of the muscles and the tendons. They should also know the number and the character of all the bones in the body. Well, Michelangelo, on the other hand, was an intensely pious man who spent his spare moments composing romantic and religious poetry and who for a while came under the spell of Girolamo Savonarola, an austere Dominican friar whose firebrand sermons for a while dominated Florentine spiritual uh, life. Savonarola was born in Ferrara, but he puritanically dictated the religious landscape of Florence, preaching of the dangers of opulence. He was ultimately excommunicated by Pope Alexander VI for refusing to support a holy league against the French, and Savonarola was burnt at the stake. Michelangelo's interests were far less scholastic than those of Leonardo, and although Michelangelo dissected the muscles in dead bodies, he was essentially clueless of their mechanical function. Leonardo was enthralled by the process of dissection, warning other artists in his anatomy folio that, quote, you'll perhaps be deterred by your stomach, and if that does not deter you, you may be deterred by the fear of living through the night hours in the company of quartered and flayed corpses, fearful to behold, unquote. Michelangelo's biographer and pupil, Ascanio Condivi, at times wrote of his master's enthusiasm for dissection, and at others suggested that, quote, it turned his stomach so that he could neither eat nor drink with benefit, unquote. Any comparisons between the little-known anatomical works of Leonardo and these rather unsophisticated anatomy pictures of the previous aliens prove, I think, just how far advanced da Vinci was beyond anyone else in creating the impression of natural realism. Procrastination and the sense that any Leonardo painting had in his mind a permanently unfinished need for perfection 
belies the fact that he approached his art substantially strengthened by his knowledge of anatomy. Indeed, one Leonardo biographer, Giovanni Lomazzo, wrote of the artist that, quote, he never finished any of his works he began, because so sublime was his idea of the art, he saw faults even in the things that to others seemed miracles. Leonardo's dissections of the eye of an ox and also of a human skull were performed in a sufficiently systematic manner so that he could appreciate visual processing and the way an image was presented to the pupil and then was inverted onto the retina. He was clearly aware of a series of optical tricks to explain these phenomena that were known by the Arabic physicians and which had been published by the English cleric John Peckham in his Perspectiva Communis, which had been written very early on, sometime between 1268 and 1278. The anatomical work that Leonardo performed through dissection was an essential prerequisite for his artistic philosophy and expression. He had a capacity in work for what today we might refer to as compartmentalism, but he was also imbued with what the art critic Walter Pater considered, quote, some unsanctified and secret wisdom, unquote. First painter, then scientist, engineer and alchemist, Leonardo straddles the threshold of scientific thought and true experimentation. He was an exceptionally private man whose anatomical imagery of the bodily interior seems to have been produced more for his own edification than anything else. He conceptually belongs, I think, however, to the medieval Europe, lost in an entropy of intentions and with a scientific legacy that lay more in its potential than in its achieved uh, reality. But, um, by the end, I think for Leonardo, there was more legend than influence from a mind whose genius Goethe had written, quote, Muda sich gedacht, had thought itself weary. The science historian George Sarton wrote of Leonardo that, quote, his originality was due not only to his inherent genius to the penetration and comprehensiveness of his mind, but also to his ignorance, unquote. How blissful, I think, to have been so ignorant. Michelangelo, however, occupies a somewhat different space. A profoundly spiritual man, it's not inconceivable that he feared unbridled dissection as some new doorway to atheism. However, unlike his rival Leonardo, who covetously guarded the privacy of his work, Michelangelo used his anatomies as a democratising force. No less touched by a divine grace, his sculptures were the unguarded result of less intricate dissections, the products of examinations of the corpse that were more superficial and which ignored the hidden organs. They were tactile encounters designed for the masses. The 17th century ushered in the beginnings of the methodology of science, with Galileo, Kepler and Newton formulating the basic physical rules that govern the movement of celestial bodies. At this time there was a shift in anatomical focus and interest from Italy to the Netherlands, where the dissecting halls were the principal research centres feeding new discoveries about the structure of the body. These examination rooms were led by 
charismatic anatomists like Friedrich Reich and Hermann Brahave, both of whom, Reich in Amsterdam and Brahave in Leiden, headed vibrant faculties which attracted many overseas students. And through their discoveries in the morbid anatomy room, they would begin to drive the new fields of physiology and pathology and to dissect the complex mechanisms behind the generation of sperm and the ovarian follicle that defined embryology and fetal development. The endeavour in these fields was accompanied by an equal enthusiasm to examine and to understand the field of teratology, the mechanisms behind the formation of fetal abnormalities. But it also encouraged many to amass and exhibit specimens deliberately for their deformities and rarity in private anatomical collections. With the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, Holland emerged as an independent nation from the Eighty Years' War with Spain, but with the United Provinces splintered into a Catholic North and a Protestant South. Despite marked Protestant factionalism, the Netherlands was more permissive than most other countries at the time towards the espousal of particularly novel philosophies. The philosopher René Descartes moved there from France in 1628 and stayed until the last year of his life. And whilst in Holland, he spent much of his time dissecting cadavers and proposed a more mechanistic view of human anatomy which converted the dissecting rooms into battlegrounds that pitted the established Galenism against the this new Cartesian model. Dissecting halls were often attended by clerics and philosophers, both seeking physical evidence and affirmation of their particular belief systems. And outside, in the streets and beyond the newfound liberalism of the arts and philosophy, there remained a significant appetite for public dissections, and the principal cities, as in Italy, boasted and built their scientific reputations around these raucous events. Anatomizations of common criminals were hugely popular at a time when the Dutch economy was expanding at an almost exponential rate. Professional artists were commissioned to record such dissections by the guilds of surgeons across the country, particularly in the north, and to execute group portraits of the attending dissectors who would each pay a fraction of the cost. Depending upon their individual contribution, each of the surgeons would be painted for posterity in a particularly recognisable Netherlandish style of group portraiture, which at the time similarly captured local militiamen and civic guards, burghers, night watchmen and the like, as well as to-do, well-to-do merchants and their families. Between 1600 and 1700, in fact, in this golden age, it's guten as it was called, there were more than one million portraits commissioned in the country, with the anatomical paintings, where the cadaver or part of it was the primary subject anatomicum, a small but symbolic part of this phenomenal output. This increased interest in homegrown art made genre painting particularly competitive, as the Dutch national and international goods trade soon dominated European markets. During this period, the Dutch invented the stock market, established a national bank, and formed the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, importing staggering quantities of spices from the Caribbean and Batavia, pepper from India, porcelains from the Far East, and whale products from the Svalbard. The VOC was so large that, independent from the government, it minted its own money, 
negotiated international trade deals, annexed land, and was able to wage its own wars. The portraits of the surgeons then at their dissections were commissioned when public anatomizations were at their zenith, and whilst the living standards of an emerging Dutch middle class were now the highest in the world. The few remaining anatomical paintings that can still be found largely in the north of Holland commemorate the achievements of these public dissections and focus on the social importance of the praelector anatomiae and his relationship with trainees in the arts of anatomy and surgery. Great artists were sought for their commission, including Art Peters, Thomas de Keyser, Nicholas Elias Pickenoy, Adrian Bucker, Jan van Neck, Cornelis Troost and Tibbet Redkes, but none more famous than Rembrandt van Rijn, who uh, produced two of the most remarkable dissection paintings um, ever conceived. The first and perhaps more spectacular painting now kept in the Moritzhuis and the Hague was his 1632, The Anatomy Lesson of Dr Nicholas Tulp, showing the dramatic dissection of the forearm of a cadaver in front of seven young surgeons. Perhaps Rembrandt might have attended an entire dissection and sketched his impressions inside the new Kleiner Bleichhall, the newly built dissecting hall, ironically located above Amsterdam's meat market. More likely, he produced this extraordinary painting from his studio in St. Antonis Briestrat, the present-day Jodenbriestrat, as a piece of conceptual art. To have wasted a cadaver merely dissecting the arm and not to first have dissected the more perishable organs of the abdomen and chest renders the picture symbolic. Indeed, just before he died, an inventory of Rembrandt's estate had registered, quote, four flayed arms and legs as amongst his property. On October the 2nd, 1669, two days before Rembrandt died, an inventory was made of the artist's house by the genealogist Peter van Brederode, where the presence of human limbs was uh, recorded. The topic of the painting, Dissection of the Hand, signifies a virtual direct line between Tulp and Vesalius and is an allusion to the frontispiece of Vesalius's Fabrica. Tulp himself was born Clace Petersoon and adopted the tulip as his family crest, changing his name in 1622. Tulp's anatomy tutor was Peter Poor, who was a pupil of Vesalius, and with some conceit Tulp referred to himself as a Vesalius Redivivus, a recycled Vesalius, considering himself amongst a pantheon of historical dissectors. As dissection art, Rembrandt's Tulp lesson is a masterpiece, uniquely drawing the eye first to the cadaver, whose darkly cyanotic hue contrasts with the healthy warmth of the rosy-cheeked surgeons. The students of anatomy are captivated both by the body of the corpse and by Tulp's hand gesture that explains the complex biomechanics of the forearm tendons. Indeed, the superficial tendons of the forearm are shown decussating around the deep tendons in a manner that was later formally referred to as Camper's decussation after Petrus Camper, a later prolector and anatomiae of Amsterdam. The head of the cadaver in um, Rembrandt's painting is strangely tilted onto the torso. Perhaps he was beheaded rather than hung. The right arm is much smaller than the left and the dead body, bathed in light, 
is the principal source of physical and hence intellectual illumination. Actually, we know quite a bit about the cadaver in this dissection. He was a well-known felon, Aris Kent, also known as Adrian, Adrian the Soon, or Aris the Kid, a thief who was executed on the 16th of January 1632 for stealing a gentleman's scarf. Kent's crimes are part of the penal records kept in Leiden, Amsterdam and also Utrecht. And X-ray analysis of the painting shows a stump under a repainted right hand, most likely an amputation, which Kent could have undergone for an earlier robbery. The death sentence imposed would then have been the result of it being a repeat offence. And it suggests that Rembrandt painted Kent Narhatleven from life. Kent's criminal record is actually recorded by Van Eigen in his book De Anatomische, which is um, in the Amsterdam archives uh, and records the anatomy uh, uh, book, which is the anatomical book of those dissections that were publicly performed. It wasn't until 1656, with the hanging of another thief, the Flemish tailor Joris Fontaine, also known as Black Jan, and the appointment of a new prelector, Jan Diamond, that Rembrandt was commissioned for his second anatomy lesson painting. Diamond, a local physician, had been appointed after Tulp was elected a city burgher, and this was the first of only a few public dissections performed during Diamond's tenure. Normally hung among, uh, or above, really, a, a chimney flue in the College of Surgeons building, the painting was badly damaged in 1723 by a fire, leaving really only a haunting fragment of the surgeon's hands, the body of the deceased and a complete image of the surgical assistant as a solitary witness to this event. The hands are those of Diamond, who teases out the soft tissue sleeve of the brain, its dura mater. The body of black yarn is faithfully represented as it might appear at the stage of a dissection, its abdominal contents already removed before putrefaction. The assistant or preparator is Giesbrecht Matthias Kalkern, an accomplished surgeon in his own right, who's gently holding the upturned top of the skull, the calvarium, ready for any discarded tissue, but much as he might a church collection plate. Black yarn is painted in proportion, foreshortened from below the sotto in su manner used by artists like Andrea Mantegna, the memory of whose 1490 Lamentation of the Dead Christ is heavily invoked in viewing this Rembrandt. And in so doing, Rembrandt invites the viewer to imagine the executed criminal transported to some sort of divine end. The lobulations of the Fontaine brain, the jury as they're called, are particularly realistic and they show how intimately Rembrandt had witnessed human dissection. In the picture fragment left, Diamond reaches down into the open skull vault to release the two cerebral hemispheres. It's precisely the method for removing the brain in any modern-day anatomy room. I think to add to the symbolism of this painting, the two hemispheres of the brain are separated by a sharp ridge of dura, the falc cerebri, whose shape has been likened to the scythe of the Grim Reaper. Uh, Grim Reaper. Both the Rembrandt's anatomy lesson paintings convey the stark brutality of human dissection, but separated by nearly a quarter of a century, each approaches the same subject with a different symbolism that demonstrates the evolution of Rembrandt's style 
and that mirrored the remarkable changes that had occurred over that period in his own personal life. The diamond lesson is more visceral and far less sanitised than the talc lesson. It brings to the viewer some sense of the clinical savagery of dissection that is necessary in order to acquire new knowledge. In the talc painting, the dead tissue sharply illuminates his work, but by the time Rembrandt has produced his diamond painting, that which is dead and which is putrefied is irrevocably blurred and sombre. Death is dominated not by light, but now by Rembrandt's favourite oil, the bone black. Rembrandt's artistic evolution can also be found in his treatment of the split carcass of an ox, two paintings separated by 16 years that he executed at the meat market just below the surgeon's Vlieshaal. The early anatomy lesson paintings and these slabs of meat at an abattoir may have wryly exposed his views on dissection in general, but they also are a reflection of how much he had changed as an artist and as a person. They can be viewed with the knowledge that he had over this time suffered the premature death from tuberculosis of his beloved wife, Saskia van Uhlenberg, when she was only 30, and the year after their son, Titus, was born. In the same year that the diamond lesson was executed, Rembrandt endured a crippling bankruptcy, and his work, once lauded, was now considered by many critics, including his old pupils, as ill-formed, out of date, and devoid of style. Rembrandt's later work was heavily criticised for its sketchier, less polished and more abstract style, with critics including his own pupils, Delores and Samuel Dirks von Hugstraten, who became an art theorist, and both openly made derogatory remarks accusing Rembrandt of an Alterstil, a style of old age, and of ronding, rounding out, and Utefing, which is wavering in space. Before Rembrandt died, the attacks were relentless, with one of Van Hoogstraten's pupils, who also became a major art critic, Arnold Hubracken, calling Rembrandt's technique of painting nudes from life disgusting. The anatomy lesson paintings continued for another hundred years, but they too disappeared from view with the demise of the public dissections. A new and more precise era of anatomical imagery was ushered in some 50 years on by Bernard Siegfried Albinus, Leiden's Professor of Anatomy, who once more embraced the strict proportional symmetry which had been stressed by the ancients. Albinus strove with his chosen artist, Jan van der Rahe, to re-establish the true dimensions of a homo perfectus. Indeed, the relationship between anatomist and artist became so close that when van der Rahe's son unexpectedly died, the artist moved into the Albinus home, where he stayed for nearly 20 years. From then on, van der Laar only ever drew images of the human skeleton under strict instruction from Albinus, and he never improvised on any of his work. Passion for detail was the hallmark of Albinus's 1747 magnum opus, the tabuli skeleti et musculorum corporis humani, which signalled his lifelong preoccupation with bodily perfection and its description. The technique developed by Albinus and van der Laar were... Uh, for body representation, and they are still used in art studios today, and they permitted a proportional image of the body and any foreshortening of the limbs to be enlarged or contracted perfectly onto any sized page. They set up two separate frames of different sizes, 
with a neat grid in each through which Vanderlaar would look, drawing the image of an idealised skeleton point by point onto paper so that all the parts were visible at right angles to one another. And in order to produce equivalent images, one frame was placed what's called 40 Rhenish, about 12.5 metres away from a normal grid, and another 4 Rhenish away with a one-tenth size grid. The giant book drew the body from every angle, with Vandalar in some of the pictures curiously positioning his perfect skeletons in front of a rhinoceros. Indeed, the images of a rhinoceros etched by Vandalar in Albinus's Human Anatomy book are most likely a sort of inside joke between artist and anatomist. Vandalar had gone to the Amsterdam Zoo to draw an Asian rhinoceros ad vivum for the first time in recorded European art. At the time, a travelling rhinoceros, which was called Clara, had famously been touring European cities. In Dutch life, the rhinoceros was considered a vis vitalis, a force of nature, with Vandalar perhaps seeking to rival the first image ever made of an African rhinoceros, which had been drawn in 1515 by Albrecht Dürer. Using an approach which exactly measured the geometry of the human form from this new standard was adopted uh, uh, by contemporary artists like Albrecht von Halle for his Iconum Anatomicarum, produced with magnificent illustrations between 1745 and 1747. This association between artist and anatomist that allowed the perfect transfer of human proportion to the page may be considered to have reached its pinnacle with Vandalar and Albinus. When Vandalar died in 1754, Albinus fell into a deep depression that prevented him from ever working effectively again. And even if Albinus's legacy has faded, this highly architectural approach inspired others towards a perfected depiction of the human body. This tactic was ultimately exemplified by the physician-turned-artist Jean-Galbert Salvage, who believed that the Greeks had achieved a deep understanding of anatomy through human dissection. Working in a military hospital in Paris, Salvage dissected those soldiers who had died in duels, and he then positioned and cast their écorchés in the pose of classical sculptures, like the Borghese Gladiator, drawing and then etching these dissections with a personalised, draftsman-like obsessionality. For Selvage, art s'illustre par la science, art gains lustre from science, and la science se perpetue par l'art, science endures through art. Selvage collaborated with the art historian Tuisson Bernard Emeric David to construct a synthetic model which was applicable universally for anatomists and artists, but this idea was rejected by the École Centrale des Arts. It was a good 200 years before the idea of models and mannequins were uh, more routinely used. Well, before all that, the London surgeon John Hunter had also put on display his collection of over 13,000 specimens of animals and humans, which he'd ranked in developmental order, and it included his large personal assortments of skulls that he used to describe a taxonomy of what he'd called the human economy. One of his visitors was the naturalist Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who brought to London his enormous collection of skulls, mostly acquired from navigators 
who in their discovery of distant lands had desecrated indigenous burial grounds. The 18th century spawned many books and anatomical atlases which described in detail the various racial differences inherent in observations and measurements of the bony skeleton. Anatomists through their collections designated the ranks of human development and from there surmised the impact such variation had upon ethnic intellectual capacity and even upon civility. Camper's uh, 1794 book, The Connection Between the Science of Anatomy and the Arts of Painting, Drawing, Statuary, etc., created a personalised ordering of his private cranial collection of orangutans, Barbary apes, sloths and manatees into a hierarchy of development that also compared the skulls of Hottentots with Madagascans, Indonesian Celebes, Chinese, Mongolian Kalmuks and Afghani Mughals. Each of these other races had craniometric measurements which he reported were well below the preferred Caucasian European ideal. And these recordings and calculations promoted the notion that a common ancestor of Homo sapiens, the theory of monogenism, was impossible, with Blumenbach separating the human races into Caucasian, American, Malay, Mongol and Ethiopian. This was indeed became the task of many um, uh, European anatomists. Writing of the value of craniometry in his Decus Craniorum in 1779, Blumenbach's work became adopted as part of an anatomical theory of scientific racism. And at the time, the naturalist Georges Cuvier implored the explorers of the Bodan expedition, who were charged between 1800 and 1803 with charting the southern aspect of the Australian coast and the island of Tasmania, to, quote, bring back the savage skeleton, unquote. At this time, William Hunter, in competition with the museum founded by his brother John, had separately constructed a smaller but more intimate rival display. William's compendium combined the products of a busy obstetric practice with some of the elements of a natural history museum, and it incorporated his personal medal, coin and art collections. The brothers were both obsessive and competitive dissectors who overcame much personal enmity to collaborate on William's magnum opus, The Human Gravid Uterus, which in 1774 depicted spectacular images of the progressive growth of the fetus in utero. All of this was collated over 25 years, with pictures etched by the landscape artist Jan van der Rimstik. The unborn are drawn in red chalk with a tender exactitude, each still inside the uterus. The women are, however, left incomplete. They have no faces, their limbs are amputated and their genitalia removed. Along with the artist, they remain unacknowledged in the preface to Hunter's greatest book. In one particularly realistic image, Van Rimsdick drew the fetus snug in an opened womb with the ceiling windows of the hunter's dissecting room reflected in the amniotic membrane covering the baby's head. Writing in a different era that was unconcerned with the ethics of such representations, the obstetrician Sir James Young Simpson had declared that one of the plates was, quote, the most beautiful anatomical plate that has ever been given to the world, unquote. To produce such a monumental work, it's certainly probable that both hunters colluded with the gangs of resurrectionists operating at the time so as to acquire all of the bodies that they dissected. 
but of this there's no definitive proof, nor bill of sale or written evidentiary transaction. The natural battle between artist and anatomist is reflected partly in style and partly in substance. Artists striving for individuality may clash with the anatomist's imperative towards total accuracy. Indeed, when Bidlou and Delores fought over the most faithful representations of Bidlou's dissections that were prematurely rushed into print in the publication of the Anatomia Humani Corpus in 1685, the artist's response was to impudently draw an errant housefly settling onto one of the rotting carcasses. Just as Van Rimsdick had tried to inject a sense of realism to dissection that lay in the pure mechanics of its portrayal, so too had Delores expressed an artistic licence in the examination of the human corpse. In this case, however, the irony introduced by Delores into this and other images proved so intolerable to Bidlou that the two men never worked together again. Once more, the stylistic direction of anatomical imagery changed. The post-Hunterian illustrative manner that had previously captured the splendour of fetal development fell away. After the human gravid uterus, Van Rimsdick was unable to get much other work, even though he had made obstetric drawings something of a specialty. In England, his pictures of the anatomy of childbirth were always under the prudish direction of William Hunter and were consequently executed with a particular British modesty. At the same time in France, however, the artist Jacques-Fabien Gauthier d'Agauty was actually instructing his anatomist Jacques-François-Marie Duvernay towards ever more explicit dissections, and the artist was producing coloured mezzotint images of childbirth that were far more graphic and which revelled in an uninhibited post-natal realism. One of the works of Dugotie even fetishises the open rawness of a woman who's just given birth, her stillborn infant, also anatomised, but still with its umbilical cord left attached. Another image, leaving nothing to waste, chillingly dissects a baby from its dissected mother's womb. With the death of the hunters, the great Windmill Street School passed into the hands of the dissecting brothers John and Sir Charles Bell, both of whom had an interest in combining the discipline of art with anatomy. The anatomical pictures by John Bell appear more crudely drawn to reveal the savage violence of dissection, but they're wholly commensurate with his view to bring more realism to such art, believing as he did that the representation of anatomy should never be diluted or bland. The subject of true anatomical drawing to the capricious inference of the artist, Bell wrote, the rule is that it has been to make it all too beautiful and smooth, leaving no harshness. He was very effective in his condemnation of his contemporary anatomical artists. Bell at all points attempted to convey what he considered the cruelty of dissection, an impression that could only come from his experience of dismembering a body. He coruscated others for, quote, their vicious practice of drawing from imagination. Charles, however, was the more accomplished artist who spent his life describing the anatomy of the nervous system and how the peripheral nerves established central connections to the spinal cord and the brain. His 1806 book, The Anatomy of Expressions in Painting, based upon his analyses of each of the muscles of facial expression, and his later 1833 book, The Hand, Its Mechanisms and Vital Endowments, 
in evincing design were both serious attempts to unite his anatomical findings with the tenets of his deep personal faith. The work he published on the facial muscles separated the physiognomy of animals and humans, and in so doing, Bell had tried to categorise the facial characteristics of the different races, just as his predecessors had endeavoured to differentiate their intellectual and cultural development through cranial measurements. Images drawn by either Bell are instantly recognisable for their humanity. The tortured expression of the cadaver, often the first thing the eye is drawn to, even when the dissection is going on at a remote distance. Bell images provoke a wonder beyond mere anatomy, and they compel the observer to contemplate what might have been the life story of the dissected cadaver. The illustrative legacy of the Hunters and the Bells was that of an embellished dissecting experience, one style drawn with spectacular technique and the other sketched with less sophistication but with far more intimacy. After this, by the time Henry Gray had approached Henry van Dyke Carter in November 1855, with only an idea to produce this seminal work, Gray's Anatomy, Descriptive and Surgical, Neither man knew that the product of 18 months of feverish dissection and sketching would become such a lauded masterpiece. This giant book with its iconic 363 illustrations was an instant success on both sides of the Atlantic and it's never been out of print since. More than the complete rendition of the known macroscopic anatomy by meticulous dissections personally performed by Gray, it is Carter's illustrative style which revolutionised the visual representation of anatomy. His techniques, which rapidly became adopted, provided a schematic, dispassionate and reproducible blueprint for how internal human anatomy should be portrayed. Gone was the vivid symbolism of an earlier time that had acted as a memento mori and which had bowed to the palette of Vanessa's metaphors. Under Gray and Carter, anatomy developed a far more serious motif as a fervent, scientific topic for study, and more importantly, recapitulation. Lifting these images out of their era, they became timeless. But although some reviewers at the time were glowing, others were highly critical. Greyer had his ardent followers, no doubt, but also his vociferous retractors, many rebuking him for not acknowledging the stalwarts of anatomy who had preceded him and influenced his work. The popularity of the book among students and surgeons, however, overruled those dissenting voices. Carter's style disseminated and was reproduced worldwide with a haunting familiarity. It's impossible to know where Gray and Carter might have taken anatomical illustration if Gray had not so suddenly and unexpectedly died. Even though he'd been previously vaccinated... Gray contracted confluence smallpox whilst looking after his nephew Charles. Uh, Charles survived, but Gray unfortunately died at a young age. Gray's, as it has become known, has survived and thrived under the astute direction of a variety of high-profile and charismatic editors. Lately, it has been expanded by its most recent editor, Professor Susan Standring, to include computer-generated imagery, complex radiology and deconstructed, reconstructed video links. But with these advances, it, its editors had, within 50 years of Gray's death, jettisoned Carter's original pictures. Gray's is now 
more than anatomy. It's a resource for linking the architecture of the human body to medical progress. Gray and Carter lived through a stable period where the acquisition of bodies was regulated. Once more, the dissection of the corpse went behind closed doors to establish the protocols and curriculum we use today. The illustrators have replaced the artists, a gradual event that was hurried along by the invention of daguerreotype photography in 1839. The current creative links between anatomy and scientific art now lie in the complexity of the cell and subcellular machinery, in the tendrils of neuronal connections and in the otherworldliness of images from electron microscopes. This art can only claim to be derivative, and even when it reflects concrete organic mechanisms, it often appears abstract and disconnected. But another avenue for the imposition on the wider consciousness of anatomy and the dissected human body has emerged. The corpse and its parts have become of late fodder for the public gaze in exhibits that purport to show the organic effects of leading bad lives. Here in Van Hagen's Body Worlds, we see the visceral consequences of smoking, obesity and a poor diet. But Van Hagen's in his shows of plastinated corpses also channels the dioramas that were made from human remains by 18th century impresarios like Reich and Fragonard. Showcasing the body and its interior as theatre may seem novel, but it has its roots in an era characterised by both a prudish puritanism and a fascination for the grotesque. The next part, uh, which is called Exhibiting Bodies, I'm going to consider the artistic use of the body for show. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.